Hi, this is Dr. Sean Handorp, clinical psychologist and health behavior expert, and this is the Motivation Made Easy podcast. Each week, I'll be bringing you science-backed information, strategies, and inspiration to master your relationship with food so that you can feel in control of your habits, respect your body, and free your mind to focus on the things in life that truly matter. I'm a clinical psychologist, and I've had years of experience doing research and patient care in the field of weight management and eating disorders. So I've had the insider view on understanding what works and what we're getting very, very wrong. In this podcast, you'll find practical information and tips based on motivation science, interviews from experts, and stories from real people and how they've navigated their relationship with food. My goal is to empower you with information, inspire you to make changes that fit you, and feel 100% supported along the way. So settle in and make yourself comfortable, and get excited to learn and take action for a better, healthier, more energized life. Stay silent. Stay still. Have you ever unconsciously followed that command? I know I have. Today, I had the pleasure of interviewing Rachel Rickabaugh, and this is a really great episode. I want, it is a longer one, but I want to tell you why I think it's crucial that you listen to Rachel's story, because I can almost guarantee you're going to relate to some, if not a lot, of what she shares with us today. So, in this interview, Rachel talks about her relationship with her body and what ends up being a, a, a weight loss journey that starts with a physician who really sees her as a whole person and really helps her to feel competent that she can make habit changes that focus on her health. And really, she has a very sustainable, flexible attitude towards food as she's making these habit changes but at some point things flip and things become rigid. They become fixated on a certain weight of BMI. They become obsessive and unsustainable. And we talk about all the reasons why this is and Rachel really reflects on it so eloquently. And I think so many people are going to relate to this because even if your journey looked different than hers, the, the the intention behind what she was doing was always very flexible. And, and then there was some things, and we talk about it in the episode of some of the external pressures, some of the rules that she internalized about what her body should look like, what the healthiest amount of weight is for her. And I will say that we don't talk about specific numbers in this episode, um, so just a heads up on that. We're not going to go into the amount of weight she lost or anything like that, but really what I want you to do as we're listening to this episode is see where you can see yourself in her story, because I guarantee there'll be a lot of places. So we cover a lot. We talk about her early relationship with food and her body and the impact of being biracial in a predominantly white area and how this impacted her identity and sense of self. We talk about her progress with 
flexible habit change and weight loss, as well as the impact of people's comments and being asked to share this journey publicly online. We talk about her extreme skepticism at first with health at every size and intuitive eating. She says, I thought they were BS, which is common, and what eventually changed her mind. We really, I think the theme throughout all of this is her curiosity, her willingness to learn, gain support, keep an open mind. She used science and research to really empower herself and achieve this more holistic and flexible view of her health ever before. And it was cool to hear her really talk about the difficulty unhooking from a certain weight loss goal and what that was like for her. And we also cover a bit what she'd love other people to know about uh, making comments about bodies and weight loss. So there is so much good here. I think you're going to really learn a ton and I can't wait to dive in. So let's get started. Are you sick of dieting and fixating on the scale? You know it's not helpful, but you're unsure what else to focus on? Or maybe you're sick of feeling pulled in a million directions and stressed about all the things you are not doing, even though you know on a logical level you are doing a lot of different things. Do you ever fall into the trap of thinking that moving away from dieting means not being motivated or being undisciplined. I'm here to tell you that moving away from dieting is the very best way to cultivate lasting motivation for the things that matter in your life. When you're not focused on ineffective diet strategies, you free up time and energy to focus on things that truly matter. And that could be related to eating or movement or also other meaningful things in your life. Most notably relationships and the people that matter. I know that you don't want to reach the end of your life having regrets, and the best way to do that is to clarify what truly matters to you. So I should know, I spent 13 years of my life doing all the good diets, quote unquote, under the sun, and I, what did I have to show for it? Not much. A whole host of completed food journals, mostly just weight gain and a lot of stress, and truly a loss of belief in myself. So if you're ready to ask the question, what should I be focused on? It's time to take that first step, getting super clear on what matters to you right now. This is the number one strategy I hear over and over that is most helpful in developing the right type of motivation. So have you done it yet? I do this exercise at least twice a year now, particularly when I'm feeling a little lost or directionless or less than motivated to do the things I want to do. So grab my free guide to get started at drhondorp.com forward slash goals. That's D-R-H-O-N-D-O-R-P.com forward slash goals. There, I'll walk you through the step-by-step process to get started on clarifying what matters to you and where you should be focusing your attention during this season of your life. It's never too late to stop dieting and truly start living. And before we dive into today's episode, just a reminder that this podcast and blog are for informational and educational purposes only and are never to be construed as any form of medical, nutritional, or any form of professional advice. If you are struggling, please always reach out and consult with a professional who can help guide you with how this information can apply to you and your situation. All right, so today I have the pleasure of talking with Rachel Rickabaugh. Rachel is a 33-year-old second-grade teacher from Grand Haven, Michigan. She's passionate about supporting her students' social and emotional development and fostering a mindset of learning in her classroom. 
She enjoys walks along the pier, board games, listening to podcasts, reading, and spending time with her friends. She also enjoys writing and currently does it mostly for herself, but she's blogged a bit and hopes to be uh, have a more public platform one day. Today, Rachel is gracious enough to share her journey about her relationship with food and her body. She is actually one of my early blog and podcast listeners and readers and really has been such a wonderful member and part of the psychology of wellness community. She was one of our founding members of the body respect program, our online program. And truly what I've appreciated so much about Rachel is her inquisitive nature, her truly deep desire to understand her body, openness to learning, wanting to look at things really holistically. And truly she has had the best questions. Uh, I think many times when I'm asking questions to guests on the podcast or in various settings, Rachel's sort of the voice behind some of those questions. And so she sent me some via email. So I'm so excited to dive in today and have her share more about her journey. So welcome, welcome to the Motivation Made Easy podcast, Rachel. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, and I'm really excited to share some of my story today with your listeners. Yes, me too. So let's have you start off by sharing some additional background information, like a little bit about more about growing up for you, where you were born and raised, what kind of childhood was like for you. Okay. Well, I was raised in Spring Lake, Michigan. It's a small suburban type town in Western Michigan, um, Northwest of Grand Rapids, right near Lake Michigan. So I grew up in a really beautiful area, beaches, parks, bike path. And if I look back on my childhood, I would say like one of the big hallmarks was just that ability to go outside, you know, play all day, explore, um, enjoy the area that we lived right on the bike path. And on each end, there was a park. So I spent a lot of time, you know, going from park to park, playing in the woods and nice all that stuff. Um, but yeah, growing up was a little bit complicated too, just with some of my family stuff. Um, there was like mental health issues in my family, some substance use issues, and then some involvement with the legal system. Um, and I think for me, like I had always been a really, really sensitive child. And that combined with some of the stuff that was going on um, made me really anxious. And I think that had a really big impact on me that I didn't really realize probably until about five years ago or so. Um, But I held a lot of that in. We didn't really talk about what was going on. And I think by all appearances, for the most part, you know, things probably looked fairly typical. Um, But yeah, my whole kind of motto and outlook was, you know, be an easy kid, be a quiet kid, make it, you know, easy for the family, just kind of excel in school. And that's kind of what I took on as a way to cope with some of the more tricky things that I dealt with. Yeah, you were dealing with a lot, it sounds like. And that in the psychology world, we kind of talk about that as like low expressed emotion families and Um, I can relate to that a little bit too. It's not like that you had this overt message per se that emotions were bad, but sort of by default, because things were not discussed, you sort of learn that this is not something we talk about. And it sounds like for you really just trying to be quote unquote good. And it makes me think back to your quote from your blog post that you shared with me a couple months ago, right? I have the quote here, wasn't it? Stay silent, stay still. Yes. Yeah, that was kind of 
the motto I took on without even realizing it. I remember it wasn't until middle school I got invited to a youth group and they were all they had these small groups and they talk all about their feelings and things like that. And like, that was just such an eye-opening experience for me. And yeah. Did you like it? Yeah. Yeah. It was really tricky. And for me at first, I think that was kind of a hallmark moment of where things started to shift a little bit. And I think that really helped me get through like my middle and high school years. Yeah. I'm so glad that you had some, some shift in that, but yeah, it can often take take a lot you're like oh wow I can have emotions and like that's okay how how liberating how freeing but often we have to learn those messages many times before it really sticks for sure yes and what was your relationship like to food and your body growing up um growing up I was known as a very very picky eater Mm -hmm. um there probably a long long list of foods I didn't like um, it wasn't necessarily a huge deal other than, you know, my family kind of joke about it. Friends would kind of joke about it. I didn't necessarily eat what I would consider like a lot of nutrient dense type food. I ate a lot of, you know, what you would think of as typical kid food, but I don't know. It didn't necessarily pose a big, a big thing. It was just kind of how I ate. I didn't think much of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say now, like looking back, one thing I think was missing is I didn't necessarily seafood as like a way to care for myself or see that really modeled by adults. Um, I just ate what tasted good to me. Um, and I was very, you know, not interested in branching out in that and, you know, trying new things, which probably is related to some of the anxiety stuff. Um, but yeah, that's kind of how things were with food as far as my body goes. Um, I, where I really remember, um, my relationship with my body, like I'm thinking about that is probably just a little bit before puberty, like those early signs of puberty, which I think I hit before a lot of my peers did. Um, And, you know, so my body was changing and I didn't really understand that. We didn't talk a lot about that, of course. So to me, it was like, oh no, like this is not good. I was like, this is not the kind of body I should have. And my family didn't really necessarily do a lot of dieting. There wasn't a lot of diet talk. So I feel really lucky in that. But I think just from society, I was really into magazines from media and all that. Like I knew the body I had was not the body that I thought was, you know, good or acceptable. And I just remember, you know, really struggling with that and just kind of after that, just taking that on, even as other people's, you know, bodies changed too, I just felt so uncomfortable really in my own body. Yeah. I appreciate you sharing that because that's so, so common, whether, whether puberty comes early or late, I think we're so bad at at talking about it. I think that's changing a bit. I do think it is changing, but certainly you and I are similar in age. And that was the case when I was growing up, we didn't talk about anything. And then one day, um, an aunt of mine got like me this big book called like our bodies ourselves. And that was like my introduction introduction to these topics, but it's, I mean, it's very normal to experience weight gain during that time, but yet when we've internalized these messages that small is good, thinner is better, this is the ideal body, it's very easy for that to become, not only because biologically things are changing, but also just psychologically. And so that sort of like ingrained messages were kind of there, it sounds like, not necessarily from your family, which is nice, but yeah, it doesn't always have to come from that. And 
yeah, we need to do a better job for our young girls being able to process the, the differences in terms of what they're experiencing and what they're seeing. Because yes, for sure. Yeah, I feel like I've seen that shift a bit, um, you know, being a teacher and, you know, kind of reading about child development and what, you know, people are thinking and, you know, having friends who are parents now, but Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely think it's a tricky time and we need to make sure, you know, we're doing justice for our girls and helping them, you know, understand that. Yeah. And you're a second grade teacher. So obviously that's early in terms of that discussion, but I do wonder, is there any shifts that you've seen in the time that you teach in terms of how we talk to girls about their bodies? I know that's super early, but. Yeah, I do think where I'm at is a little early and my previous experience is all in preschool. Okay. But even now, like when I think of the teachers who teach, you know, even like third, fourth grade where some of that stuff, you know, is starting to happen. I do think there is a shift in some of the dialogue and, you know, I've seen it just among like friends and peers too. Um, I think mm-hmm. people are more intentional about normalizing that kind of stuff. Um, it might also have to do with kind of the world I'm in now. And I am intentionally seeking out, you know, people who understand that. And yeah, I always wonder that too. I'm in the same boat. You're like, I don't know, because I'm really <laughs> selecting my sample in a biased way right. <laughs> intentionally, but yes. Uh, and I like my daughter's, well, she's almost four, but she, I just love the way she thinks about her body. It's amazing. And I'm like, can we please keep this forever? Like that's, I just want to like hold on to it for as long as we can. She just looks in the mirror and is like, I'm beautiful, mommy. Like, it's just so great. <laughs> yes. It is so refreshing to listen to kids and even like with, which I know we'll talk about more in a little bit, but the intuitive eating stuff. Like I remember when I really started learning about that this past spring, I took my kids on a field trip to get ice cream. And I was, that was actually a food I was struggling with at the time. And just to watch my whole class, just eat it intuitively. I just was like in awe of, you know, these little second graders. Yes, absolutely. They, yes, they are. It is so amazing. And it's, it in some ways shouldn't be, but we're so, we can get so removed from it, but it is so fun to watch the joy that they take in the process of eating, but also like in their bodies and like what they can do. It's just cool. So I, they are great. They often can be great models for us. So I love that. And you shared with me previously that you are biracial. Can you tell us a little bit how this has impacted you growing up, kind of your identity and maybe how that might relate to your body image relationship with food? Yeah. So I am half African-American, half white, um, but I only grew up really with the white side of my family. And where I grew up in Spring Lake is a very white town. Um, we, I didn't know any people of color like that I was close to. I think there were a few kids maybe younger than me in school who I would see, but I didn't know of anybody. Um, so it have been really challenging. Yeah, it, it was. I didn't realize it at the time, you know, and it's always just it's kind of been normal for me to be the one that looks different in the space. I've never really had to be the other way around. Um, but it was really tricky. I think, you know, my family and doing what they thought was right did not talk about, you know, my race, did not talk about my differences. It was a lot of that like colorblind mentality, which, you know, they didn't necessarily explicitly say, you know, it doesn't matter what color you are, we love you the same. But I think in not talking about it, that's kind of was the why behind it. 
Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, it was really tricky and it just made me think like something is, you know, wrong with me. This part of me is, you know, not okay. And I just felt really, I don't know, ashamed, but I don't know if I would have, you know, really realized that I just knew something is wrong with me. This isn't the body I should have this, you know, isn't something, you know, I can really talk about. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I don't know. I think that really impacted my body image and my relationship with my body. I think in some ways, like I distanced myself from my body. You know, I wanted to be white. I, in my head, actually, like if you would have asked me, I would have just said I was white. That's how I identified myself truly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I would do things like try not to get too much sun because I wanted to look whiter and just, you know, Mm -hmm. that type of stuff Mm -hmm. Um, and I think too I'm not I guess it's clear looking back how maybe that impacted my relationship with food I do think now that I've learned more about like different body types and you know I've studied the BMI stuff a lot because I got really into that yeah I you know now I know that that pretty much is bogus but right (laughs) um, also in hearing like how that is different for different races and stuff like that. Um, I think I thought, well, I need to eat in a, you know, different way because of my body and my body is like always going to be, you know, bigger. And I didn't necessarily tie all that together, but I don't know, it just brought a lot of shame on me. And I think eventually a lot of emotional type eating, I don't know if I would have connected the things, um, those things together, but I think that could have brought on some of that and some of my family stuff, I think brought that on too. But yeah, it got really to the point, like I, when I was 16, that I had put on quite a bit of weight in in a year, which I don't know entirely if that was emotional eating, biological stuff, what it was, but yeah, it ended up leading to a doctor making a very, very negative comment that kind of really, you know, stuck with me. And it was at that point, I was like, well, this is my body. Like, I don't feel like I can do like dieting or any type thing like that. So I kind of just said, well, I'm just going to eat whatever I want, whenever I want. And I don't care about my health because I can't be healthy because this is just how I am. I don't know if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. But it, it does. And I, I know that that's, I appreciate you sharing all of that. First of all, the, what you just mentioned is, is really common. This idea of like, feeling so ineffective and feeling really probably like you said shame but also being overtly shamed like having this person this doctor make that comment it just makes you think about like the the motivation things we need to feel uh competence right we need to feel like i can do this and to feel like well i'm already like i don't have a lot of control here you're already making me feel bad about this like i and to some extent it's avoidance of like i just don't want to look towards this pain because you've been told like it's not okay to talk about difficult things and so you didn't have an outlet for all of these different things that there there's a lot to unpack there and so it's you think about it's like very adaptive to be able to say like all right like I'm going to focus on other things I can control like for you school right and some other things that that actually is a very adaptive response but it can you know sometimes be problematic in terms of like you know, if, if weight gain, like you said, it's like, we don't know exactly when weight gain is like appropriate for your body type and biologically versus this weight gain. That's like less healthy. It's always hard to know exactly what that is, but, um, 
but yeah, I mean, I think again, I definitely grew up in that generation of like the colorblind is like the best way to be. And yet what we know now, and I think there's still people that I, I come across that kind of think that that's the, the most helpful way to be. And I would imagine maybe in West Michigan, you also come across that still For where, sure. yeah, it's like in, and really, I think helping people understand that no, being able to have an outlet, even though as not a person of color, right? Like I, sometimes it makes us nervous to be able to, like, we don't want to offend or we don't want to mess things up, but having that outlet, having that space to process complicated thoughts and emotions about your race or your identity or, and, or how that relates to your body is really powerful. It sounds like, and that's something that would have been ideal again, not blaming anyone, but Right. Yeah. I still find there are a lot of people, yes, who buy into that colorblind mindset really is the best. Um, but I think now that there's a lot less of that, mm-hmm. and I've found spaces that are a lot more, you know, affirming of who I am. That's things have shifted so significantly for me that, yeah, I really see the value in other approaches. So. Yeah, absolutely. Is there anything you'd want people to know if they're still sort of in that mindset of like, I'm not sure how to have these conversations? Is there anything you'd want like to say to them or that they should know? I think the biggest thing is don't let that fear of offending to hold you back. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, obviously you can't control people's response, but I think a genuine, you know, trying to do the right thing is, you know, worth it. And I think we know enough now to know that, you know, ignoring race and ignoring differences really isn't the answer. And I think just humbly trying to step into those conversations, you know, admitting like you don't know what to say or you're not sure, but you want to come in with this perspective as a learner and, mm-hmm. um, you know, just try to help and affirm people for who they are. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. Like, yeah, learner growth mindset that you like to foster in your classroom and just moving away from like, you don't have to know everything. You can be curious, you can ask questions and you are probably going to mess up and that's okay too. Right. Yes. I think that's a huge thing. Yeah. Being able to accept that, you know, it's going to be a messy process, some messy conversations and that's okay. That's part of the learning process, but we can't wait till we get everything right to then try you know we would never try then yes we would do nothing exactly yeah and and I the other thing I'll say too I had did an interview recently with Victoria Evans talking a little bit about the science of intuitive eating it hasn't come out yet but she highlighted something to me that I thought was really interesting this idea of it's not just when we are looking at social media and only seeing bodies that our body doesn't look like whether we're talking about like weight body size or race, it's actually not just like, oh, psychologically, we compare ourselves and feel bad. There is this biological innate need to feel sort of like we belong and that we're safe because, and that's a psychological need from self-determination theory, but it's also a biological need, like way back in the day when we were all like, you know, in groups kind of staying safe from things like lions, we had to know that we were safe in a group. And so being able to sort of feel like we belong and if we're seeing ourselves look different a lot, I would imagine that was a psychological stressor for you that you wouldn't have been fully aware of, but that being able to sort of like process and talk about that again, at least better now than never, but being able to sort of notice like 
yeah, that that's, that's something, that's why representation, better representation in things like media is so important. Again, body size, sexual orientation, race, all the things, but um, it, it just sort of highlighted it in a different way that I hadn't fully thought of. Psychology and biology are not separate, and yet sometimes I think of them as like one or the other, which doesn't make any sense given what I do, but I just fall into that category sometimes. And it's like, no, we're bi- biologically hardwired for that connection and feeling yeah. of belonging. Yes, that's so, so important. Yes. And what, can you tell us what some of the most pivotal moments in your journey with your relationship with food and your body were kind of like aha moments, if you will? Okay. Yeah, I think one of the biggest things and where things kind of started to shift for me in a more positive light is when I met with an obesity medicine doctor. Um, I ended up eventually switching from that doctor that made the comment and, um, you know, a new health center was opening up by my house. So I ended up going to that and through my primary care there, she connected me with an obesity medicine doctor. Um, And I never really met somebody that talk to me so like compassionately about, you know, my body and who I was. And yes, like we, you know, I wanted to lose weight and trying to help with that, but that really wasn't the focus. I felt like the focus was, you know, who I am and what I was doing. And then like, okay, what can we do that would help my health? Um, you know, we set an initial weight loss goal that in comparison to what I thought I should lose was, you know, fairly small, but then I think three habit goals, like pretty simple ones, you know, for me at the time that felt doable. And, you know, I honestly only tried two of the three because the third one was more like movement based. And I was just, you know, not ready for that yet, but just working um, on my health in that way, just really changed how I saw things. Um, even like within the first few weeks, I realized, okay, I'm feeling a lot better physically, mentally, um, in a way, like looking back on it, like it, I feel like it mirrors a little bit of what I'm learning about intuitive eating. I, I didn't have those words at the time, but some of that gentle nutrition piece. And mm-hmm. I think the key word was, it was very gentle and it just fit with where I was at at the moment. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you felt like seen and heard for as a whole person. You felt like a sense of not being like stigmatized in any way f- for your weight or who you are. And then was given to you in a way that you could sort of build that feeling of confidence and competence in yourself. Like, I got this. I can do this. Yeah, yeah for sure. Like, I remember thinking like, oh, I can't lose that that weight. I, you know, I'm not, I, can, I definitely can't do that. But I'm like, well, I can, you know, we had like, goal that was based on like water and the one that was like just based on like fruits and vegetables I'm like well I can do that those are pretty you know simple things I'll just give them a try and see how they feel um Mm -hmm. that was kind of one of the first things eventually I did decide to incorporate more movement but that probably was more like nine months into this whole like journey that when we first started meeting I had a lot of anxiety just around like being out and walking in front of people. I just felt so uncomfortable in my body. I just did not want people to think I was out there trying to exercise. Like I was going to like accomplish something. Um, so fear of judgment. Yeah. I had a huge fear of judgment. Um, Yeah. So 
I eventually was like, okay, I can go for walks. That's okay. And then somehow I got in my head, like, I think I want to start running. Um, I had never been a runner, even back when they first make you do the mile, I hated it. And that was kind of in some ways my motivation. I'm like, well, I, I think I can run a mile. Like, I think I could get there eventually. Like, I'll just give it a go. And it was really hard. It was really uncomfortable, but it was also like a good challenge. And I felt, I don't know, like I, you know, I can do this. Why not give it a try? And I actually came to love running, which is crazy. I, I never, that was never my goal or never something I thought would happen. I just thought, well, I want to run the miles. Um, so that was another really, really big Moment. Yeah. But you didn't pressure yourself immediately. You didn't like take this, like, I have to do this right now. You, you kind of gave yourself like you think about, yeah, intuitive eating or intuitive movement, like trusting yourself, like, okay, now I'm kind of ready to tackle this challenge and viewing it as a challenge versus like, I have to run a mile tomorrow kind of a thing. It's not like that mindset piece. It sounds like was allowed you to develop that sort of intrinsic joy of it and enjoyment of it. Yeah. Yeah. I started, you know, very slow and like the doctor I, I was working with was very supportive. You know, she was a runner and, um, you know, she would say things like, I'll come help you, you know, if you get stuck or, you know, let me know what I can do. And was really a big cheerleader, even though, like, I think I started off, like, even just like a 10th of a mile, I would walk or, you know, just yeah. little things like that. Um, and to me, it felt silly at the time, but you know, it was where I was at. It was what fit and it, you know, felt really good. So, yeah. And that's how, I mean, we, we give this idea that like you just overnight success, like it's just a cultural myth that we talk about. And, and really like, that's how most sustainable change is created is like little, little bits feel good about that. Right. Or maybe you feel like, I don't know. It sounds like maybe there's a little bit like this is silly, but you also sound like you were able to kind of give yourself credit. Like, cool. You did that. Nice. And sort of like some, I guess maybe a little bit of self-compassion there, maybe. Yeah. There was a lot of conflicting type feelings going on, which at the same time that I was working with her, I, you know, I'd been in counseling for a really long time. I also had started some group counseling, which is really powerful. And I've been working really hard on that self-compassion piece. So you know, in my head, I made some groundwork. This is silly, but I also knew, you know, opposite side of that. And, you know, just learning how to speak to myself more compassionately and just see like, yeah, I'm not going to go out and run a marathon. And that still is never really my goal or something, honestly, that appeals to me personally, but how can I care for myself? And like, I deserve that care. And, you know, how can I do that in a way that feels good? That's, you know, where I was, what I was working on at that time. Nice. Yeah. And you, you obviously you're describing it now and we've talked how like really you were very focused on like sustainable changes, habit changes, not really too weight loss focused, right. Not focused on restriction. When do you think that changed for you or how did that change or kind of both in one? Yeah. Um, probably about a year or so into, you know, the journey I was on, I kind of realized like, oh, I think I can lose weight. Like, I think at first it kind of protected me that I thought, well, I can't lose weight, but you know, I can do this and I can, you know, make these little changes and feel better. But when I realized and think, oh, I could, I was like, well, what's the ideal weight? You know, I've always been kind of a perfectionist. I can get kind of obsessive about things. And 
So that kind of became my thing. I think too, it, like people were giving me a lot of compliments and I think they met really well. And for the most part, you know, it felt good. Mm -hmm. um, the health system I was like working with, they wanted to do an article on what, you know, I'd achieved. And I was like, okay, well now, yeah, I need to figure out where I should be since I can lose all this weight. I found this article online. I love to research on Google and I do all kinds of things like that. So I found the article that said that's the BMI I'm going to like live the longest at. And then I just really started seeking after that. I had always kept a food diary on my journey. Um, but at this time it became much more like calorie focused, calorie tracking. I think I realized too, the you know, more weight I lost, the more I was going to have to cut calories to keep going. So it started to become very obsessive in some ways, you know, I was cutting out foods that like looking back on it now, it's like, why would I even think to do that? But I was just basically trying to eat as low calorie as I could. Um, and yeah, I just became obsessive about the tracking, the weighing myself and it kind of started out slowly. Like I thought, well, if I want to be this weight, which I thought I should be, this is what I need to do. And this is what kind of people must do to get there. I, I didn't really, you know, think about it too critically. And I think mm -hmm. too, like, it's kind of funny because even like the doctor I work with never gave me this, this goal. This is a goal that I found, you know, myself and just kind of went gung ho for. So, mm -hmm. yeah, but we are, I mean, it sounds like that was really the, the piece, maybe a combination of getting fixated on a certain BMI goal, but also this, like the, the, which is really common. People do think they're like doing something nice by like praising people for weight loss, but that, often, very often, I hear this all the time. First of all, it can be frustrating because you're like, well, was I not good before? There can people can I have mixed feelings about it in the moment, but also it can put this additional pressure that even like, I don't know if you felt like that with the article, but sometimes people when they're sort of, their journey is on display in some ways with a weight loss piece of it, there can be additional pressure. And I know for people other times afterwards, like feelings of shame about that. And, and so there's a lot of, we think about like internal, external motivation. There's a lot on the external side there, a lot of shoulds, a lot of pressure, and that's harmful for this, you know, whatever sustainable habit or gentle nutrition or whatever we want to call it. Yeah. When you put it that way, I can see how things kind of shifted from that internal motivation to more external. I know like, yeah, when they did the article, I was like, well, you know, there's, once they tell you about it, there's time to when, you know, they do it, then time to when it comes out and all that. Yeah. Um, and I still wasn't at, you know, my goal and I just got really freaked out. Like I need to be a success story. So I need to keep doing this. Um, and when I actually hit my goal, it became even worse because I was like, well, I hadn't really any plan of how I was going to maintain this. Um, mm -hmm. and I just kind of like, well, what am I going to do? You hear about all the statistics of people gain all the weight back and gain more. And I was like, well, I don't want to be that person. So instead I just became like this very obsessive person yeah. about everything. And it didn't help that that was March of 2020 that I hit my goal probably about two weeks after the pandemic. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, so I live alone. I'm, you know, a teacher. So school was shut down. So my hobby really became being obsessed with staying the exact same weight, honestly. <laughs> uh-huh. Wow. That's so much 
so much at once, really, like, because yeah. maintenance, maintenance psychologically is a very challenging. And we could talk about like the theory behind weight loss versus maintenance and all that. There's sort of not helpful views, I would say on that, but that yes, it really shifted from that, like to that external because, and that's, I, I think really common. I Luckily, I think we're seeing less of it, but we think about like the biggest loser shows and like the pressure that people feel when their journey is on display in this way that people I don't know. They don't even realize how harmful it can be. Like, I don't think it's uh, many times. I don't think it's at all poorly intentioned, although certainly those shows are trying to make money, but it's yeah. Pressure, pressure is never good. Even something like having a, a future vacation can very often feel like pressure for people, right. Or like a wedding coming up where you're going to see a lot of people that almost never helps for like feeling good in our bodies and making healthful changes. I'm not saying it never does, but if it usually undermines competence and freedom with our relationship with food, not the opposite. Right. Yeah. I went from a lot of like more intuitive stuff or like the doctor would give me guidelines, but honestly, I always took them very loosely. Like I remember there was a food I quite a bit of that. And she was like, well, maybe try not to like eat that, you know, X number of times a week. And, you know, I took that with a grain of salt. I never followed it strictly, but yeah, yeah once all those more external influences were, you know, really in my head, I became much more rigid and all that. Yeah. And I think that, um, I know I was going to talk to you about like your, your approach on sort of like goals. And maybe we can jump to that a little bit because it's this idea of like, you were sort of taking on external information and goals, but using it in a more intuitive way at first. Right. And then that sort of shifted towards more rigidity and more like buying into external rules associated with mostly with the BMI and the focus on weight loss. Right. I think that's what we so often see is that undermining. And that's why people get a little confused. I think about intuitive eating and health at every size, but it's like, I don't know. I, that's why my question to you about your goals, um, and this idea of like setting a goal and you think of yourself maybe as like, I don't set goals per se is that bad, but I, I think some of it is you trust, like you knowing yourself and knowing what works for you too. I guess I would say right. that. Yes. Yes. When I set, I don't like to set very, very specific goals, which I don't know. I don't like to fail. So I thought, okay, maybe some of it's that, but I also think when I set something very specific, like I can get very obsessive with it and, you know, just setting a broader thing and kind of working intuitively within that has been more helpful just for me personally. Yeah. And I think you do set goals. It's just like, not exactly like some, we, t- we talk about the smart goal framework and like be specific three times a week. I'm going to do this for 20 minutes. And that I'm, I'm with you. I, I think that that, you know, it's, everyone's a little different with where they fall on that, but it's sort of knowing yourself and knowing like that can feel stressful sometimes. And when something feels too stressful, it typically makes us want to not to do it, which makes sense. So we yes. don't, want to miss our goal. So yeah, yeah. I can get into that all or nothing type thinking very easily. So I try and set myself up for situations where I'm not like tempted or tend to get into that too much. So yeah, I always loved your questions about that. It made me really think critically. (laughs) It was good. Um, and you found the, the health at every size book really useful as well as intuitive eating. What was your initial reaction when you're introduced to these concepts? You know, Honestly, I really thought they were just BS, like health at every size. I heard the name really, I think before learning much about it and had a lot of judgments about it. I had the idea, okay, health at every size. Well, surely 
I'm not healthy at every single size I've been at, you know, everybody can't be healthy at every size. And, you know, once I really read the book and understand a lot more about it and understand that it's not saying like every size for every person is healthy. It's a lot more nuanced than that. Um, Mm -hmm. I really bought into it. Um, and I, you know, I really feel like there's truth in it. I believe in that movement pretty strongly now. I'm still a lot to learn about it. Mm -hmm. Um, and then when I heard about intuitive eating, I thought, well, that sounds like a great thing for, you know, some people and there are plenty of people out there that I know who just eat that way. And that's great for them. But if I eat intuitively, um, you know, I'm just going to eat like cookies and donuts and cake all day. And, you know, this was after, um, you know, going through more of like my restriction and stuff like that. Um, but the more I've like leaned into those principles and kind of realized in some ways without really knowing what I was doing, I was, I think working a little bit within that framework. Um, it, you know, was through more of a diet mindset in some ways, just because culturally that's, you know, what we're in, but Mm -hmm. I feel like I really see the validity in intuitive eating. Um, you know, I've been working with a therapist and a dietitian at an eating disorders clinic and, you know, integrating a lot of those principles. And I would say now my relationship really with food and my body, it's, I mean, there's a lot to work on still, but I think it's honestly better than it ever was. You know, even when I was at my very lowest weight, you know, even before, like I, yeah, I, I really do strongly believe in intuitive eating. There are a lot of times still where, you know, if I have a day where I struggle, I want to throw in the towel and, you know, be done with it. But when I look back on, you know, how things have changed since working um, through it, you know, that keeps me going with it. So, well, yeah, I love, I love you sharing that because I think you're probably not surprised that that's super common. All of those like reactions to, I mean, health at every size is such a, like, um, it's like four words, right? Like, and it's such a nuanced concept. Like we can't, and yet it is four words that are confusing sometimes. Like people are like, huh, I don't, yeah, it doesn't make sense. And so what do you have a sense of like, was it a process? Like, were there certain things where you're like, Oh, this does make sense. This is like seeing it working. Like, what was it that helped you to kind of shift and buy more into it? I guess, besides just diving into the actual books itself and actually reading them. Yeah. Well, one thing I don't think I really mentioned yet is after being in a period where I was, you know, restricting a lot. And I know this kind of gets into what we are going to talk about um, next, but some of like the signs my body was having, um, of that, like semi-starved state, mm-hmm. um, where I was like freezing all the time. I ended up like losing my period for nine months. I had all these different, you know, things going on. And when none of that really worked to get me like in tune with, okay, I need to make some changes. Um, that's when I started like all like the binge eating and that, was super, super distressing to me. You know, that honestly, I can look back now and see all like before then that there were a lot of things I needed to work on, a lot of issues and, you know, problems there. But it wasn't until that point where I was like, okay, something is wrong. And, you know, I really thought, oh, I've lost all like my motivation. Um, You know, I thought, oh, this is the problem they talk about. But it wasn't really until I started implementing some of the intuitive eating, you know, that giving yourself permission to eat that, that behavior, like really, really decreased. And, you know, it's not something I 
don't deal with at all anymore, but not really very much. Um, so mm-hmm. I think that was one of the main ways when I thought, okay, intuitive eating, like it's working for me. I'm not obsessed with food anymore. I don't feel out of control. Um, mm-hmm. I physically and just mentally around it feel better than I have in a long time. Yeah. And seeing like, like that immediate assumption that so many people make that like, clearly this is a motivation issue. It's a willpower issue. It's a self-control and how rooted in shame that can be. And is for most of us, certainly myself included. And then yet saying like, oh, wow, this is actually heavily biological. I mean, it's like all biological, really. It's my body's. And I know like that was kind of what we were going to talk about, but this idea like how did it shift in terms of like what the binge eating was for your body? Like what sort of it was doing for your body? Yeah. Like, well, I think I thought at first, like, yeah, that something is, you know, wrong with me. And then I've come to much, like a much different view of that now. And I'm almost an appreciation for like what your body you know, does to keep you alive, to help you, you know, you know, truly see what's going on. Like, you know, my body was trying to help me out. Like there's all these, like, I believe just like God give them like systems and things that work together to, you know, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I was trying to keep you safe and alive, trying to keep you safe, like trying to really teach me, you can't just use the internet and pick some random way, <laughs> right. you, you know, to work for you. Like, yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I really love like learning about that biological like connection and those factors and the things that come up have really, really helped me get a grasp of things. Um, when, you know, I was trying to like gain my period back and, you know, get better. I started doing a lot of reading and a lot of research. I had a friend whose sister was going through something similar and she's the one that told me about the FHA functional. I don't even know, honestly, quite how you say it the functional hypothalamic amenorrhea. Oh, yeah. So yeah, when I started reading, I found like these scientific articles on that. And like, just recognizing all the symptoms like in myself down to like crazy things. Like I remember one day when I had my feet, I was like, why are my feet orangish? Like, uh-huh. Um, yes, we're going to touch on that a little bit in an upcoming episode with the dietitian about PCOS, but like, it's so it's not necessarily PCOS related. It's like, yeah, you are starving your body and your hypothalamus is saying, no, no, <laughs> this doesn't work for me. And it can come out with a bunch of different symptoms. Yeah. Most of us, I still have a lot to learn about it. It's like we, yeah, I, I was, I've always appreciated that about you. You've always been super curious and like, I want to fully understand this and I'm open to this. Like, maybe I think it's a BS, but you're still open. Like you still, yeah. you still dove in. Right. And, and you're like, I'm a little skeptical and that's, I can certainly relate to that. I have a sort of skepticism at my, my uh, core, but it's like, that's sort of the scientific method, right. Is to be like skeptical and yet open to new possibilities. So yeah, for sure. Yeah. And then I was like, you know, working with doctors and think, okay, I think maybe I have this. And he's like, well, try, you know, eating more fat, eating more carbs and see what happens. And, you know, then just watching physically what happens. Yeah. Just, it gave me a big appreciation for my body and, you know, how it can heal itself and how it can, you know, give me the signs of what I need, like learning about, I think it wasn't health at every size, or maybe it was an intuitive eating that neuropeptide why now I don't know the scale or scientific, but I'm like, oh, yeah. and that's why I was specifically like 
craving carbs. Like I remember like in some of my most disordered days, like Googling, like there was a particular food and it was kind of strange, but it was one of the only carbs I had in my house. And no wonder I was like eating that. Like, yes, my body was needing. Yes. I know they do. It's been a bit since I've read that, but they do break it down. It can be super empowering if, for people that are listening that haven't yet, if you like science, especially, but even if you yeah. don't like, this is a biological process going in my body that is making me increase my carb craving It's truly not a deficit of willpower. And like, also carbs are not bad. And, right. oh, I can totally relate to that too. Like you'll find whatever. And you're like, and that's where people get this idea of like, I'm addicted to foods or I'm addicted to carbs. It's like, and that's why the food addiction concept is so very controversial and, and like can really be unhelpful because our brains absolutely feel addicted in that moment. And that's not at all what's going on. It's your body's attempt to keep you alive and safe. Yeah. 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 Um, and, and it sounds like too, for you, it's been really pivotal to kind of like, obviously let go of like that random BMI number that you picked out off the internet, but that, um, I know that's a lot of things that a lot of people struggle with. Like what has that process been like for you to sort of like let go of, uh, you know, that number, but also just like the number, right? Like the unhooking from that. Cause that's a challenge for most people. Yeah. That was so hard. Um, I think at first, like, you know, and I was within the quote unquote, you know, normal range. It wasn't like I was considered underweight. So I, you know, was like, clearly I should be able to be this weight. It's not, you know, bad. It just wasn't right for me. Um, so then at first what I said, okay, well, I'll be okay with gaining some weight, but I still need to be in that considered normal range. So I was like, I'll just be on the end of that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, that didn't quite work either. That just isn't where my body at least has wanted to land. So Mm -hmm. it's really just been a long process. I think that's one thing I've worked a lot on, like with my therapist, um, Mm -hmm. you know, to really think about and try to think rationally. I think learning to, again, like I love to learn, learning more about you know, the BMI, where it came from, and just really trying to logically think things through, like, is there really something that happens when you go from, you know, this number of pounds to this number of pounds, and right. you're not in the ranges? is that really truly mean anything? You know, no, it really doesn't. Yeah. Um, I think too, working with doctors who've been really supportive has helped me. Um, you know, I want to say it was a time or two ago that I met again with that obesity medicine doctor. I still meet with her and, you know, she's like, you're the healthiest I've seen you like in a really long time. And, you know, I'm not considered in that normal range anymore, but, you know, for me physically and mentally, I do feel healthier than I ever like was at that lower weight. So Mm -hmm. that's really helped me too. Yeah. I love that. Just really broadening that circle of this idea of what is good, what is healthy and, and really putting a a much heavier emphasis than many of us do, or at least in the field on well-being, emotional health and, and just like flexibility and not being preoccupied. And yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm healthier. Yeah. Now with a much more, you know, balanced, working that balanced life than I was when I was thinner, but really struggling mentally and really just obsessed with, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I love that. 
And what are some things you wish more providers like physicians, dietitians, therapists, whoever knew about eating and weight that many currently do not know? Um, I think one of the big things is just more of an awareness for eating disorders and that they can happen at any size. Now, I'm, I think, you know, probably doctors realize that somewhat, but I don't know that that's necessarily on their radar. Like mm-hmm. I remember one of the providers, um, not the one I like worked most closely with, but in the depths of like my struggling with like restriction and all that, like her comment was like, wow, your, you know, your muscles, you're so strong. Like you're giving me hope that I can, you know, be like that, not really asking about any of my habits. And this is really before I realized something was wrong. You, you know, now had she asked me about like some of the stuff I was doing to like get like that, um, I think it would have been probably clear to her something was, you know, wrong because what I was yeah. doing was not normal. Um, mm-hmm. I think just more of an awareness or like I think of those screening things, you know, they always give you like at least a mini depression type screener now. It seems like when you go, for mm-hmm. primary care, but even if they just asked a few questions about eating habits, I think that could be really helpful for people. Um, yeah. And less focus on the outcome, outcome being the number on the scale or like the look of our bodies, right. And not be so commenting on that again, one way or the other. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think there's, I don't know. I, I think another thing too, and this kind of relates is just educating people, especially if they're working at some sort of weight loss type setting, or, you know, you notice they're losing weight, even if it's through like lifestyle changes and it seems, you know, something, you know, different, not like your typical diet. You know, I realize now there were a lot of diety type things about what I was doing, even though I think it was mostly approached through, you know, a mm-hmm. way, but um, I think just an education and awareness about eating disorders for people. I had zero idea that that would ever be something I could struggle with. I associate them with, you know, thin, like white emaciated women that, you know, that's really all I thought of. And I didn't think, I think that's for a while, for a long time, I didn't think anything was wrong with what I was doing. I just thought, you know, this is um, what I have to do. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think too, just, you know, referring people when you notice they are struggling. I think that was another thing. Um, I did have a doctor who realized some stuff. And once I, you know, realized I couldn't do this on my own, she helped me um, get help. But I think initially, if somebody would have pushed me to get, get help for what was going on, it would have happened a lot sooner. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's all super important. And, and realizing too, that like, it's, I think for you, it, it had to be sort of like, um, loud behaviors, meaning like, you know, like a lot of restriction or like, and it also like screening sooner or checking like the sooner, the better, right? Like the, before it gets to this place where it's, um, as, as obvious. And, and so it's all in a continuum. And so, yes, in medical settings is usually a great opportunity in theory to, to check out those. So I think that's a great point. Yeah. Um, Oh, go ahead. Oh, no, I just, I think the biggest thing though, that I want doctors, therapists, any, anybody, honestly, just the general public to know that I wanted to make sure I said is just to really think about, and I actually would say mostly probably not to comment on people's bodies. You know, I think that was the bit, one of the biggest things, um, 
is even well-meaning compliments, how much that I feel like, you know, affected me and Mm -hmm. ended up complicating things. I think too, there are like the power that words have in a positive way is really helpful, but I don't think it's necessarily the comments about people's body and body size that were those things. You know, I think back to that doctor that I've worked with for so long, what's really helped me is, you know, just her, you know, letting me know, you know, she's on my team. She's on my side. She's going to help me you know, find what's healthy for me. And it's not like this body shape, weight focused type thing. Um, so I just think that's, yeah, Yeah. I love that. And I think, yeah, some people, again, as we said, think that they're doing the right thing, but really like when people lose weight, sometimes maybe there's a part of them that wants to hear sort of a reinforcement of that. However, that even if they want that in the moment, many times they don't also, but being able to just comment on like, how are you? Like, how are you doing? Like just check in with where they're at emotionally. And you really don't like people feel like they have to say something. And that it's like, I don't know why, but I think it's just, we've been culturally trained, but to say like, I know just show up for that person, just like that doctor did for you, but just for anyone in your life to just be like, Hey, how you doing? How you feeling? Like what's going on? And just ask those more broad questions because that shows you're there for that whole person and how they're doing as a whole human and not so body focused. Right. Yeah. You truly don't know if somebody's losing weight, why they are. So yes, exactly. Super and close to their life, but um yeah. Yep. Exactly. Weight loss is not always good. Weight gain is not always bad and vice versa. So don't, we got to stop making assumptions. So I love that. And we kind of touched on this too, but in terms of our motivation questions, what's one thing you have truly intrinsic motivation for? Well, surprisingly enough, I think it's become running for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I truly love it. I feel like, especially now that I, you know, for a little bit, it did get a little bit I think tricky and wrapped up with some of my eating disorder, but you know, I don't do it for a certain body size, a certain weight. I just, I love how it feels. I love how freeing it feels. I find a lot of benefit to my mental health. And do you get the endorphin rush when you run that everyone does? You know, I did. I sense kind of hurt my foot. And so I can't, I don't run as far as I used to. And I think that's probably why I don't quite get that anymore. Yeah. Um, but you know, I'm been going to PT trying to help my foot and hopefully that'll come one day, but I still love the feeling of it. Nice. So there's lots. Yeah. That's some people get that. Some people don't. And I'm actually in a similar boat to you. I don't currently, well, I do run a tiny bit, but I have to run one minute and then I have to walk for four and it's, I don't get the endorphin rush that I used to, and I miss it, but well, yeah, it's, it's, it's running is wonderful, but it can be hard to like run without pain in many yeah. ways. It's like, yeah. a, it's challenging. You have to do so much work to like keep running, but I love it too. So it feels worth it. So wow. yeah, one day we'll get back to that full rush. Full. Yeah, it's like, I can definitely relate to your struggle or it's like, yes, like I don't quite get that yet. I'm trying to work back up toward that, but yeah. In the meantime, I just kind of mod- have to modify a little bit. Yes. I'm with you. I'm just about to like, yeah, rejoin another sort of not rejoin, join a program that's supposed to like help you get back to running safely. So I need, I need more support and accountability. So I'm 
upping the support and accountability factor. So I'm excited. Um, and, and related to our from a should to a choose to question, what's an example of a behavior that was always a should for you that you struggled to do, but you figured out a way to do more consistently because you value it or and or it's part of your identity, even if you don't always love doing it? I wish it was doing my PT exercises. I'm still working on that one. Uh, um, support and accountability. That's the only thing I got for that. Yeah. <laughs> I guess what I would probably say, social media breaks has been a big one for me. It's something that, oh, I always felt like I should do that. You know, it's good. But, you know, it was like, I don't want to miss out on anything. And being single, living alone, especially during the pandemic, I'm like, well, that's my social like outlet. Yeah. But, you know... I've done it and I try to do it regularly now. And now I see those benefits and, you know, it is something social, but when I really want to work on different areas of my social life, I just find it better to take, you know, those little breaks from it. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that is one of the biggest ones. How often do you take breaks? Social you know, it's, breaks? Hard, it's hard to say. Like, I think my <laughs> longest one is I did like a month. I did December last year and now like, you know, I'll do a week or even a few days um, or I'll take it off my phone and then just try to do it on my computer. I have, don't necessarily have a regular rout routine for it, but sure. I can get a sense now too when it will be helpful for me. So mm -hmm. yeah, if it still comes up, I probably will do it again just so I can really focus on what's important. Yeah, I love that. That's we're we're currently in somewhat of a break right now with screens in our family, and it. I've been doing increasing breaks recently after reading reading digital minimalism, and I'm like, it does feel so much better, and you don't even realize it. It's very, but yeah, it can feel like a should at first, like. And I think a lot of people, when I say that I'm taking a break, they're like, oh, I can never do that. And I'm like, oh, I'm not saying you need to, but I'm just saying like, this is what I'm doing. And then when they do decide to usually they kind of have that similar impact you're like oh I didn't even realize but yeah oh, it's so true and I didn't realize how much of a habit it is just when I'm sitting somewhere waiting oh, open up my social media I know I know I have so many like just moments with my own thoughts now and it's like oh this is kind of uncomfortable but probably good <laughs> <laughs> and ends up being reinforcing so well, wonderful. Well, to wrap up here today, I've so appreciated all of this. Um, what is the main takeaway you'd like people to leave here with to kind of know and understand about bodies, eating, weight, kind of the health space we've been talking about here? Yeah, I think there are a few things. I think one of my biggest things is if you have concerns either about an eating disorder or just disorder eating, because that really is so normalized. But if oh, yeah. you have something like that, that's distressing to you, like seek help. Um, that's been so transformational for me. Um, you know, you don't need to be at a certain weight to get help or a certain body size. You don't need to look a certain way. Um, I think that's the biggest thing. Mm -hmm. And then trust your body. And, you know, that's a process. Like I always say, I'm learning to trust my body and my body's learning to trust me now. Um, mm -hmm. really trust your own intuition and, you know, listen to those signals your body is giving you physically, mentally, um, you only got one body. So take good care of it as best you can. Yeah. I love that. I think that's incredibly important. Well, is there anything else you want to share before we finish up here? You know, I think, you know, the only other thing I can really think of is 
your body might not fit society's mold and that's okay. You know, your body isn't wrong. Society is. So, Mm -hmm. you know, we can work together to change that. And, you know, I think that's super important that there are more voices like that in this, in this world. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So many, so many good quotes here today. Your body isn't wrong. Society is trusting and listening to your body and like how you described yeah. Learning to trust your body and your body trusting you. I, I often think of that too, as like that, that disconnect that gets so out of whack and we don't even realize it really with well-intentioned quote unquote, healthy programs. It's like so external. And so yeah, reconnecting that takes time, but, and unlearning and learning, but it's totally worth it. So thank you so much for being here today, Rachel, for sharing your story. I so appreciate you. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure and an honor to share my story. And we have a few links to Rachel said her blog is not super active, but she does have a blog about her story a couple, uh, several months ago that and we'll link to all of that in in the show notes in case anyone wants to find that story and, and connect with you. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Right, everyone. I hope you really enjoyed that. At the end there, Rachel has some really great quotes that I don't need to repeat. You just heard them. But this idea of all these messages that we internalize and we just take as truth. And it's many times societal pressures that is the problem, not you, not your body. So the other take home that I want to highlight is when body diversity, and this could be age, sex, race, sexual orientation isn't represented, we are sending a message psychologically and biologically to people that they aren't safe and they don't belong. And this causes a stress response in the body and is something that even I fall into the category of sometimes not considering when we think about movements towards more social inclusion. So one of the reasons I talk about social inclusion on this podcast is because it's essential for creating environments where we have long-term sustainable change for everyone. And this is really crucial for improving all of our health. It's not an individual thing. The other takeaway that I think is pretty obvious here is that many people think intuitive eating health at every size is BS at first. And I think this is pretty much like the most common reaction. And yet I've never really heard anyone who's really dug into the science and learned about it thoroughly be able to poke many holes in it. So if you can, um, let's chat. I'm I'm always open to areas where we might need to improve, but I think before you label it as BS, or if you label it as BS, at least be willing to, to read and learn. I'm struck by the fact that science and research can be so empowering Rachel's such an example of being inherently curious and and skeptical, and that's the scientific method, right? But she's always open to new ways of thinking and being, and I think it served her really well. You know, I think the last takeaway is to get the benefit from a more flexible, empowering, sustainable relationship with food. You do have to do the work. You do have to be vulnerable. I don't know Rachel incredibly well, but I'm continually struck by the fact that she doesn't give up. She's always working to learn, improve, and she's not avoiding. She's not avoiding things that are uncomfortable. She 
is open with her story. And she shared with me after the interview that sharing here was something she felt called to do. And she really has this incredible combination of learning and science and then leaning into her intuition. And and I think that's an incredible skill that she will continue to use for the rest of her life. And I think there's so much that we all can learn from that. So if you, like Rachel and I, have learned or internalized at some point the message, stay silent, stay still. In fact, the world depends on us to unlearn that message. So with that said, thank you. Thank you for being here and have a wonderful day. If you're anything like me, you may at times really feel like there's so much pain in the world that it's pretty overwhelming. And even though I do my best to avoid the news, it's hard to avoid feeling helpless at times that you can't do anything to make positive change. Well, I'm here to tell you that there's one positive change that I've made in terms of where I buy my books, and I'd invite you to do the same. Bookshop is a website that supports local bookstores near you, as well as affiliates that work with them. So if you buy through the bookshop link, you're going to be supporting local bookstores near you in the U.S. and Canada, and you're going to be supporting my blog and podcast. It's kind of like a tip jar. Did you know that if nothing slows their momentum, Amazon will have about 80% of the book market by the end of 2025? Look, I have Amazon Prime. I love the convenience, but this is a super cool way that you can do something positive with where you buy your books and support some really positive causes. Make sure you check it out. You can find all of my favorite books about health and wellness, but also about topics like courage, vulnerability, and even some of my favorite fiction and kids books for the times when you just need some fun, downtime, or some meaningful stories. My recent favorite is related to improving the quality of our lives and the way we use technology, and really doing so from a value-based place. No pressure. It's not going to tell you that technology is bad. It's just going to help you to evaluate for you where the pros outweigh the cons and where they don't. So if you believe in supporting local, controlling the things that you can, please consider buying your books through Bookshop and through the Psychology of Wellness link. You can find that in the show notes, or you can go to drshawnhondorp.com. That's D-R-S-H-A-W-N-H-O-N-D-O-R-P.com forward slash bookshop. Thank you for tuning in today. Your time is valuable and it means so much to me that you're here. Despite the title of this podcast, many of our topics are not always easy. Change is hard, and let's face it, life and truly looking inward at ourselves can be uncomfortable. That's why I'm grateful. Grateful for you and your willingness to listen, learn, and keep an open mind. I invite you to learn more by going to drshawnhondorp.com or finding me on Instagram at psychology.of.wellness. If you're enjoying this podcast, it would be amazing if you could give it a review so more people can find it. Thanks, and I truly hope you have an energetic and inspired day.